your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. What age came before and after the Bronze Age? If you know the answer to that question about what age came before and what age came after the Bronze Age, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. Of course, you can uh, call that number for your questions, and also you can text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society and chat with you here Sunday afternoons about happenings in the world of science, hoping to separate sense from nonsense. Well, it is Valentine's Day, isn't it? And on Valentine's Day, how can you not talk about chocolate? It's sort of an unwritten law, isn't it? Uh, But let's not talk about the silliness of chocolates making people fall in love with each other. That's romanticized nonsense. But according to researchers at Northumbria University in the UK, chocolates may indeed make you fall in love with, of all things, arithmetic. The claim is that flavanols, chemicals that occur naturally in chocolate, can improve performance on mental tasks, especially when it comes to math. The study follows in the footsteps of other studies showing that a flavanol-rich chocolate, providing 900 milligrams of cocoa flavanols daily, produced significant improvements in blood flow to the brain, particularly in the middle cerebral artery. Improved blood flow could conceivably affect brain function, which is just what Northumbria researchers decided to test. 30 adult subjects were recruited for the study. On different days, they were asked to consume Cocoa drinks containing about 500 milligram flavanols, 1,000 milligrams, or a control beverage that tasted the same but had no flavanol content. The participants were then given a number of mentally demanding tasks to compete, such as uh, counting backwards from 999 in threes. On days when they drank the beverages containing 500, 1,000 milligrams of cocoa flavanols, the participants performed significantly better at this task. They also claimed to be less mentally tired during the task after drinking the flavanol-rich cocoa. But if you ever have the need to count backwards by threes, don't count on regular cocoa to help. You need the flavanol-enriched stuff. And, uh, of course, the researchers are working on a commercial product that will provide exactly uh, this. But what else can cocoa do for you? Maybe help you relax. Many an old wife has counseled agitated people to calm down by having a nice cup of cocoa. There may actually be some scientific evidence for this if you go by the work of researchers at the Nestle Research Center in Switzerland. It isn't what one would call a landmark study. In fact, scientifically speaking, the methodology is pretty flawed. Still, it does provide some points of interest. I suspect it wasn't hard to recruit subjects for this study since all they had to do was to eat 20 grams of dark chocolate twice a day for two weeks and donate urine and blood samples halfway through and at the end of the 14-day period. 
the participants were divided into high anxiety and low anxiety groups based on psychological questionnaires. The idea was to determine if levels of anxiety could be affected by chocolate consumption, and if so, would more anxious people be affected differently. Blood and urine samples were tested for cortisol, as well as for catecholamines, compounds that are markers of stress. Consumption of chocolate reduced levels of these chemicals in the high anxiety group, leading the researchers to conclude that they have found, quote, strong evidence that a daily consumption of 40 grams of dark chocolate during a period of two weeks is sufficient to modify metabolism of free-living, healthy human subjects. These changes, they say, seen after only two weeks, had potential long-term consequences on human health. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. They didn't carry out any psychological tests to see if the subject's anxiety was really reduced. They just relied on chemical markers. Also, a study of 30 subjects is too small a period of two weeks is too short for such a speculation. A couple of squares of dark chocolate, though, is a far better dessert than chocolate cake. But you know what? Don't count on it for providing any relief from stress. Well, chocolates are not the only topics to talk about on uh, on Valentine's Day. Uh, the topic of aphrodisiacs, of course, gets mentioned. And these are specific substances that are meant to trigger the libido. And there are numerous such substances in the scientific literature and also in the folkloric literature. Uh, for example, there are some animal-based products like buffo toad extract. Well, buffo toads um, are these large, pretty ugly toads, and uh, they have a, a, a gland just behind their, their eye that produces a certain venom called bufotenin. But at a small dose, this is claimed to have some aphrodisiac-like activity when it is orally ingested. And uh, in uh, China, apparently this has long been used as an aphrodisiac, and uh, there are all kinds of stories about how licking a toad is going to induce these amorous adventures. I think, though, that licking a toad uh, can also have a toxic effect because bufotenine is uh, quite a potent uh, uh, toxin. It is also a hallucinogen, and that may have initiated the stories that we're so familiar with about how kissing a toad uh, can turn that toad into a prince. Well, you get some of this bufotenine on your lips from a toad, and who knows what you are going to see. Maybe you will see a prince. Then, of course, there are oysters. And because the uh, goddess Aphrodite was said to be born from the sea, many types of seafood have legendary aphrodisiac properties. Most famous one, of course, is the oyster. Casanova was said to consume 50 oysters per day to boost his sexual virility and his stamina. Is there anything to this? Well, oysters do contain zinc, which is an essential uh, substance for the body's production of testosterone. Uh, oysters also contain some serotonin, which is supposed to boost the, the mood. But there really are no studies that have shown that oyster has any kind of, of an effect. There's also the old um, theory of signatures that supposes that if uh, 
substance resembles the human body or any part of the human body, then it will have a beneficial effect on the body or on that part. And uh, oysters are said to resemble uh, a certain part of the female body, one that is involved in uh, such activities, and therefore it is supposed to have an effect on, on that. Obviously, uh, that is just a legend. Similarly, for men, anything that has the shape of their particular anatomical accoutrement uh, also supposedly has an effect. Asparagus, for one, because if you take a look at a stalk of asparagus, it does have a vague resemblance to uh, the human male organ. Uh, there is absolutely no scientific basis for eating asparagus to boost the sex drive. The only thing that it will do is give you a scent in the urine, although it depends on whether or not you are genetically predisposed to that. Not everyone develops a scent in the, in, in the urine, and in fact, not everyone can smell it. it that seems to be a, a genetic um, attribute. Some people can produce it and also smell it. Babe Ruth was one of those and he would uh, eat asparagus and uh, demonstrate to others what a potent producer of the odor he was. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, talking about the science frontier, I'm looking for the answer to my question. What age came before and what age came after the Bronze Age? So you'll have to name both of those. The age that came before and the age that came after the Bronze Age. And I'm going to give you a second question. Uh, because I was talking about uh, chocolates and uh, mathematics, here's a mathematical question. The half-life of radium-226, that's a radioactive isotope, its half-life is 1,620 years. If you start with 100 grams of radium, how much would you have after 4,860 years? Okay, here are the numbers once more. I'll repeat it. The half-life is 1,620 years. If you start with 100 grams of radium, how much would you have after 4,860 years. That, of course, is three times 1620. You know the answer? Give us a call, 514-0800. You can also text me at 514-800. Okay. Uh, I also was going to tell you about lead. And there's a reason, of course, that I want to talk about that today. But first, a little bit of background. A uh, French physician, Louis Tancarel de Planche, made a very interesting observation. And this was way back in the 19th century, in the, that, that is in the early 1800s. And he found that on some ships, officers were complaining of muscle aches and abdominal cramps, but uh, the ordinary sailors were not. What was the difference, he wondered? Well, turned out 
that the officers' cabins were painted, but the sailors' quarters were not. The paint was formulated with lead carbonate. This was a classic kind of paint in those days, lead carbonate dispersed in linseed oil, one of the first oil-based paints. And the officers, of course, were showing symptoms of lead poisoning. Dr. Desplanches had been able to make the connection because he had noted similar symptoms in a number of his patients at the hospital where he worked, which was the L'Hôpital de la Charité in Paris. He noted a common feature among his patients. They all had some sort of exposure to lead, either through paints, cosmetics, food, beverages, or through their occupations. So at the time, lead carbonate was used by noble women to paint their faces white so that it wouldn't look like they had been in the sun like common laborers. Some candies were colored with lead chromate. Beverages were consumed from pewter mugs that had lead. And water and sewage pipes were made of lead and uh, exposing workers to, to this metal. So Desplanche put it all together and he wrote a classic treatise on what he called the Saturnine disease. That's what lead poisoning was called in those days. Why? Well, the ancient Roman god Saturn uh, apparently was a demonic, irritable god, and many Romans suffered from the irritation of colic and used the term Saturnine gout to describe it. Uh, the cause was likely lead poisoning because the Romans used lead pipes, lead dinnerware. Indeed, Julius Caesar's engineer Vitruvius noted that water is more wholesome from earthenware pipes than from lead pipes, and he warned against the use of lead. In the first century, Dioscorides, a Greek physician who worked for the Roman army, wrote that lead makes the mind give way. Yes, well, today we know that lead toxicity affects the brain. It may even have affected Van Gogh's brain. Uh, we know that he suffered from all kinds of mental problems. And, you know, he had the habit of licking his brushes all the time to smoothen out the hairs. And he used a lot of lead chromate, the, the sunflowers, his classic uh, yellow uh, portraits of those flowers uh, were made with lead chromate. So he may very well have uh, suffered from that, uh, from lead poisoning. Anyway, uh, early gasolines had a problem because the engines would knock and that noise uh, was due to the gasoline not burning evenly and it reduced the power of the engine. So the search was on to find some way to improve the gasoline. And the General Motors engineer Thomas Mitchley came up with a possible solution. And that was a material called tetraethyl lead, which had been discovered back in 1854. And he found that this was, uh, when added to gasoline, it would reduce the, the knocking because it acted as a free radical scavenger and it, it uh, interfered with, with some of the combustion, uh, early combustion products in the, in, in the engine. Anyway, it's some interesting but pretty complex uh, uh, chemistry there. Uh, now, right from the beginning, there were issues about the safety of tetraethyl lead. Uh, at a standard oil plant where the compound was being produced, workers were having hallucinations. And the building that they worked in was called the Looney Gas Building. And at a plant in New Jersey, workers kept having hallucinations about insects. Lab became known as the House of Butterflies. So there was a lot of controversy early on about letting gasoline, and there was a conference organized by the government at which, uh, in which case experts were called. And um, Ethel Corporation was the company that was producing uh, 
tetrad or letter at the time, and its vice president at this conference called it a gift from God. On the other hand, Dr. Alice Hamilton, uh, who was an expert on lead toxicity, said that wherever there is lead, eventually there's going to be lead poisoning. Nevertheless, it was introduced into, into gasoline because uh, government deemed that the um, effects would be too small to be noted. Uh, well, this kept um, uh, being used until the 1970s when uh, lead was um, phased out of gasoline, not because of the health effects, but because it poisoned catalytic converters that had been introduced to, to reduce uh, tailpipe uh, emissions. And uh, when tetraethyl lead was first taken out, some people protested that the reformulated gasoline was not as powerful as the old gasoline, and they wanted their old leaded variety back. And this curiously led to the word leaded being used as a slang for dark, strong coffee. Don't give me any of that anemic, unleaded decaf or instant coffee, people would say. I want the robust leaded kind. And this even spawned a company called leaded coffee. When last week a study came out documenting an association between dark coffee consumption and a reduced risk of heart failure, many media reports began with drinking one or more cups of plain leaded coffee a day is associated with a long-term reduced risk of heart failure. And that confused a lot of people because they didn't know what to make of this the business of leaded coffee. How could anybody be adding lead, toxic uh, uh, substance to, to coffee. But as I hope you now understand, there was no lead being added to coffee. This is a, a rather intriguing expression, slang expression, leaded coffee that refers to dark coffee. I haven't really heard this being used until last week when so many press reports began with this idea that leaded coffee was the key to preventing uh, heart failure. So don't get misled. Uh, mis, uh, uh, there is no lead in leaded coffee. You're listening to... Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. What is the shape of the molecule? Supplements for COVID, a continued area of interest. Uh, researchers, of course, are hoping to find some sort of dietary supplement or, you know, herbal extract uh, or vitamin that may be beneficial. Well, we just had a study, and this was by the Cleveland Clinic, which is a very reputable uh, clinic, of course. And um, what they looked at was zinc and vitamin C two supplements that have been widely promoted to fight COVID-19. Unfortunately, the headline to the study is Supplements Fail for COVID-19. This was a very well done study. They enlisted uh, subjects who were 18 years or older, who had symptoms and whose symptoms were confirmed by having had a, a real-time PCR test. So they certainly were suffering from COVID-19. 
and the researchers wanted to see how long it would take for their symptoms to subside if they were taking the supplement or not. The supplements they looked at were zinc, because zinc does play a role in the immune system, as does vitamin C. And they went, I would say, overboard. They used 50 milligrams of zinc, which is a pretty high dose of zinc, given the fact that we only need about 10 milligrams a day in the diet to meet all of our needs. And they used 8,000 milligrams of vitamin C. That's eight grams. That is a huge amount of vitamin C. Uh, we need only a few milligrams every day to prevent scurvy. And even people who promote the use of vitamin C to try to prevent colds, uh, don't talk about more than 500 or 1,000 or at most 2,000 milligrams a day. So here they were using 8,000 milligrams or eight grams a day. And unfortunately, what they discovered that neither the zinc alone or the vitamin C alone, or the zinc and vitamin C combined had a significant effect on reducing the number of days of, of symptoms. Now, of course, this does not preclude the possibility that taking those supplements will prevent infection. That we don't know. But what we do know from this particular study is that once you have symptoms, it does not uh, make any sense to take the large doses of zinc and uh, vitamin C because this study showed pretty well that they are not uh, effective. All right, I think we have uh, Jean-Pierre on the line who is going to take a shot at one of uh, my questions. Hey, Jean-Pierre. Hi, uh, do you have a question ready? Okay, so I had two questions, right? The first okay. one was to name the age that came before the Bronze Age and the age that came after. Is that Stone the one you want to handle? The Iron Age. Very good. It was the Stone Age and the Iron Age. Uh, all right, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here uh, for the benefit of all of our listeners who, of course, uh, may not know this. The Bronze Age, uh, roughly between 3500 and 1000 BC. And um, bronze, of course, is an alloy of, of tin and copper. And the reason that uh, they were able to do this at that time is because both of these metals melt at a relatively low temperature, tin at 232 and copper at uh, just about a, a thousand degrees. And that would have been able to, to uh, be reached uh, at, at that time. Iron I'm melts at you. a much- Doctor, I'm losing you. You're losing me. Well, I In don't my... know why. I don't know why I'm 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 here. Okay, the sun is okay now. Okay. In, in any case, iron melted a, a much higher temperature, about fifteen hundred degrees. So they were not able to achieve those temperatures at that time. And believe it or not, the earliest bronze was actually an alloy of copper and arsenic. And you wonder how many people were, you know, poisoned when they were trying to heat those uh, together. And, and also before glass, mirrors were made of bronze because you can polish bronze to a mirror-like uh, finish. And today, there still are a, a lot of things that are made of bronze. The symbols that are used in orchestras, for example, are made of bronze. But uh, uh, bells, the one of the most interesting things, bells are, are made of, uh, of, of bronze. And uh, some of the bells made of bronze are, are absolutely gigantic. Uh, the largest functioning bell in the world, it's called the Bell of Good Luck. It's located in a temple in Henan in China. 
uh, very close to that uh, giant uh, Buddha statue, the largest Buddha statue in, in, in the world. And this is a bell that weighs 116 tons. It's eight meters high and five meters in, in diameter. Uh, it is not uh, a bell that rings in the traditional way. It's one of those bells uh, that you you hit with a, a large rod to, to make it uh, a ring. And uh, this bell was first uh, cast in the year 2000, rung at midnight that, that year. And uh, it is a big tourist attraction. It is, however, not the largest bell in the world. That honor belongs to the so-called Tsar bell that's located in, in the Kremlin. It's displayed there. It's made of bronze, uh, but it has a big piece missing because uh, uh, when it was being made, there was a fire and a piece of it uh, broke off. And this bell has never been rung, but it is the largest bell that was ever made. It's uh, over 2000 uh, kilos and uh, it's absolutely gigantic and it's a big tourist attraction in, in, the, uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, also made out of bronze are... Uh, are these so-called singing bowls that are very popular in, in the Himalayas uh, and, and in Tibet. And uh, the bowl comes with a, a wooden mallet, and then you, you turn this wooden mallet around the bowl, and the bowl sings. So I'm going to try to do this for you because I do have one of these uh, bronze uh, Tibetan singing bowls. Let me see if I can make it sing. Here we go. There, that's kind of a singing made just by rubbing this with a, a mallet. And the reason that you are supposed to do this is because it reduces anxiety. So I hope that I've been able to reduce some of your anxiety with my uh, singing Himalayan bronze bowl. So there we have the answer to the question. The Stone Age came before the Bronze Age and the Iron Age came after it. So thanks very much, Jean-Pierre. All right, let's go to Jason, see if he has the answer to the other question that I posed. Jason? Yes, hello. Hi, Jason. Yes, I was going to answer the Stone Age question, but yeah. uh, someone already did that. But what's the other question again, Dr. Jones? Okay, all right. So we're talking about uh, radium, which is radioactive. Right. And a particular isotope, which has a half-life of 1,620 years. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. You, you're going to start with 100 grams of this. Right. After three half-lives, how much of it would be left? 25 grams. No. No. Okay. All right. So we will leave okay. this, uh, this question open for uh, someone else. And I will supplement with uh, another question for the one that was already answered. Uh, here it is. Dr. Spock wrote the most popular book ever on baby care. He has been accused of causing thousands of baby deaths with this book. What is that accusation? So Dr. Spock, who is revered by many, many mothers, uh, this is still an extremely popular book on, on baby care. Uh, and in the original version, uh, turns out that there was an issue. And because of that, he has been accused of causing thousands of baby deaths. And the question is, what is that uh, accusation? Okay, so I'm 
going to wait for the answer to that uh, that question. And let me just repeat the other one that is out there about radium-226, of course, discovered by Madame uh, Marie Curie. And uh, it is radioactive, which means that it spontaneously breaks down to half its amount every 1,620 years. That's its half-life. Question is, if you start with 100 grams of radium, how much would you have after 4,860 years? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. You can also text me messages at 514-800. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Continuing with my uh, aphrodisiac theme, because, of course, it is Valentine's Day, uh, some fascinating products that are out there. For example, 18 Again, or China Shrink Cream, or something called Liquid Virgin. These products, available on the Internet, are designed to tighten the female organ, and enhance sexual pleasure for both the user and her partner. What do they contain? Well, various kind of herbal extracts. Extract of Woodfordia, interesting plant. It's also called the fire flame bush because its flowers are a flaming red. And I guess because of that, it's supposed to inflame passion and do other things. Also contained in this uh, liquid virgin is alum which is an astringent. That's the same substance that is found in uh, uh, antiperspirants, where it closes down pores. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence that any of these work. And uh, I don't think that anyone who has any kind of scientific knowledge would recommend that these be tried. All right, waiting on the line, lots of people. Let's go to Pam. Hi, Pam. Hello, thank you for taking my call. I have two questions for you, please. Yeah. I don't have any answers to your questions. I All hope right. I have answers to yours. Okay. Um, I saw on the internet when I was Googling for things against COVID to clean up with, because I can't use Javix or strong things, hydrogen peroxide 3%. Yeah, uh, very effective, very effective disinfectant. Okay, and the other question I have for you, they're advertising hydroxyls. You put them in, you buy a machine and it sends hydroxyls in the air, and that right. kills the virus. Is that true too? Yes, this is a much more complicated answer, and actually I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a uh, column on, in the Gazette uh, for that. Uh, no, I, I would say that uh, that is much more circumspect. Uh, the whole business of purifying the air with air purifiers to reduce... Uh, uh, viral concentrations uh, is, is uh, has very little uh, science behind it, and uh, the hydroxyl radical story is is a bit too complicated to describe here in 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 a couple of words. Uh, but I can tell you that this is not something that should be relied on. But I'll 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 uh, be discussing that in much greater uh, detail in a written form. Okay. Uh, anything else? No disappointing news, but thanks a lot. Yeah. 
Family yeah, well, the hydrogen peroxide, though, is okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Okay. Uh, we go to Alan. Alan. Good afternoon. Doctor. Hi. Um, I have a question. When a microwave oven stops functioning and it starts to beep, does the microwave uh, waves actually diminish immediately, or is there a time lapse before they actually no. stop? Uh... No, as soon as it's off, it's off. Uh, they don't, microwave don't linger around. No, uh, they beep, the machines usually beep three, four times. I'm just wondering right. why they do that. Oh, that's just to alert you that uh, it's done, that ah. you should, yeah. Okay, so the, thank you very much. Yeah, there's no risk there. Okay, all right. Let's go to Debbie. Hello. Hi. Hi, Dr. Schwartz. Um, yes. I believe I have the answer for the half-life uh, question. Okay. Uh, is it 12.5 grams? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, because, of course, half-life means that it is reduced by half the amount every such lifetime. So if you start with 100 grams, then after one half-life, you'd have 50. After two half-lives, you have 25. And after three half-lives, which is the 4,160 years, you have 12 and a half grams. So you're quite right. Okay. Very good. Thank okay. you so much. Have a great okay. day. Bye. I'll, I'll uh, furnish a little bit of background here. Uh, radium in the form of radium chloride was discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie. And that was back in 1898 when they extracted it from pitchblende, which is a, a uranium ore, uranium oxide. Uh, she also uh, finally isolated radium in its real metal state, uh, Marie Curie did, uh, through electrolysis of a solution of radium chloride in 1911. At one time, radium was used in these self-luminous paints on watches, uh, on aircraft switches, clocks, instrument dials, and uh, it didn't need much radium, just about one microgram of radium in, in, uh, to provide radiation for a background of zinc sulfide, which was a, the surface that would glow. Uh, but there were problems here. In the mid-1920s, a, a lawsuit was filed against the United States Radium Corporation by five women who were dying. They were called the Radium Girls. And they had been painting dials on watches with radium-based luminous paint. And the dial painters were instructed to lick their brushes to give them a fine point. And they ended up ingesting radium. Uh, their exposure to radium caused serious health effects. And full of sores, uh, they were anemic and developed bone cancer. And that's because the body um, treats radium like calcium and it deposits it in bones. And the radioactivity there degrades the bone marrow and causes mutations in bone cells. And uh, during the litigation, it was determined that the company scientists and management had taken considerable precautions to protect themselves from the effects of radiation, yet, uh, did not see fit to protect their employees. Additionally, for several years, the companies had attempted to cover up the effects and uh, to avoid liability by insisting that the radium girls were instead suffering from syphilis, which was not true. And this complete disregard for employee welfare uh, had a significant impact on uh, occupational disease labor laws. And uh, amazingly, at one time, radium was uh, even added to toothpaste and hair products and foods 
because it was supposed to have curative powers, which of course uh, it did not have. So now you know the uh, answer to the half-life and a little bit of background uh, for, uh, for radium. All right, I still have the question about Dr. Spock and uh, why he was accused of causing thousands of uh, deaths for babies. And I'm just wondering if Steve has an answer to that. Steve? I guess not. What? And how about uh, we lost both of them because I guess they had the halftime laugh answer. Okay, if we don't get an answer to this, we'll leave this one lingering uh, until uh, uh, next week. But let me just uh, finish off our uh, Valentine's story with chocolate because that's where we started. And I told you that the Aphrodisiac story really is a myth, but it's an ancient one. And it goes all the way back to 1519 and the first visit of the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortes to Mexico. Cortes found much to his liking there, in particular the Aztec princess Dona Marina. Apparently, the affection was returned because the princess introduced Cortes to a drink made from the pods of a tree, which the Aztecs called chocolatl, that translates to food of the gods. The concoction was also laced with dried chili peppers, and as Dona Marina said, would stimulate amorous adventures. Cortes must have been impressed by the effects because on his return to Spain, he presented Emperor Charles V with a sample of cocoa, as we call the substance today. Within a few years, Europeans were indulging in chocolate and singing its praises. Everyone except nuns, that is, they were forbidden to partake of chocolate's pleasures because of the perceived potential consequences. But alas, chocolate, as I mentioned, does not have aphrodisiac properties. But if you give a nice box of chocolate to your loved one on Valentine's Day, it still may trigger something because it has that emotional connection. And especially if you gift it together with a nice bouquet of roses. So happy Valentine's Day to, to everyone. Enjoy the chocolate. Uh, it's okay to indulge once a year in that passion. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.